And good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Happy to be here. Happy that you have joined me, whether you are listening to the live stream or the FM band or archive or podcast version sometime in the future, you are very welcome here. And I am very happy to bring you a really interesting interview this evening with Paris Marx. He's written a new book called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. So this book obviously is about transportation and cars and electric vehicles and self-driving, well, what claim to be self-driving vehicles, but are not. Uh, the book is really uh, goes in depth on a lot of different topics, and I tried to get as much in uh, to our interview as I could. Uh, but if you really want to dive in, you can find a link to the book on the playlist at WFMU.org. Quick playlist and comments. If you're listening in the future, go to the Tectonic one-page site at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and just find the July 25, 2022 show and click playlist and you'll see a link, you should see a link, to the book. Now, this book, Road to Nowhere, is published by Verso. And I, <laughs> I just want to point out that this makes three books in a row that I have featured from Verso. And I, I didn't plan it this way. It just ended up on the calendar somehow. This week, we've got Road to Nowhere by Paris Marks. Last week, you might remember, we spoke to Ben Tarnoff about his book, Internet for the People. That was also Verso. And then back on June 27, we spoke with Jonathan Creary, who wrote a book called Scorched Earth, also by, published by Verso. So I'm wondering if anyone from Verso is listening, do I, get a, do, I get a, do I get a little brass clock or something? Do you get some sort of a hat trick for featuring three Verso books? Again, not, not part of the uh, plan going into this, but three books in a row from Verso and all three I enjoyed and would recommend to Tectonic listeners. Uh, we're going to hear this interview with Paris Marks here in a moment. I'll just note that if Paris Marks name sounds familiar, if you've been listening to other podcasts around technology, uh, Paris is the host of a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. And uh, it's one of the few podcasts that I have listened to fairly consistently over the past uh, year or so. And, um, and it's good. It has a similar outlook to Tectonic on, on the topic of technology. And Paris has had a number of interesting guests. And sometimes our guests overlap. Actually, he had Ben Tarnoff on his show a few weeks ago. So you can listen to both of our interviews and compare and contrast. But there is a link to Tech Won't Save Us on the playlist, again, at WFMU.org, if you're interested to check that out. And um, it, also on that playlist page at WFMU.org, we are having a live listener chat, and you can join in that. Uh, you don't even have to create a, a new account. You can, you can comment as a guest if you like. It's a great chat system. And if you're listening in the future, you can go to that playlist page and read what the comments were back in the past, way back on July 25, 2022. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Paris Marks talking about his new book, Road to Nowhere, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Paris Marks, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to uh, chat with you. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I am a longtime listener of your podcast, Paris, called Tech Won't Save Us. And I will put a link to the show on the playlist at WFMU.org. And I would recommend your show to all Tectonic listeners. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Road to Nowhere, what Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. I like this book a lot. This is a wide-ranging book, 
that counter to the title, Paris, goes well beyond transportation and mobility. I thought what you're really doing in this book, while you do give a rigorous history of transportation, cars especially, you use that in the end as a lens through which we can understand the entire Silicon Valley-led economy. You start the book talking about the early days of cars when they were seen as a luxury item for the wealthy to go faster than a horse in a carriage. There's a sense of freedom and mobility and some public demonstration of wealth. One thing that you pointed out that was very important because it comes up later in the book is that cars at the beginning were fitting themselves into an ecosystem of transportation on the street, especially in urban environments. People were walking, people were riding bikes, there were horses in the street, maybe there were carts. You see these in old films of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, all of the different uses of a street, and cars had to thread their way through this very carefully and respectfully of all the other uses of the street. That began to change. What happened from that starting point, Paris? Yeah, it's a great way to set it up because I think it is fascinating to look back at that period, right? Especially now when the car has been so normalized in our societies, when we just assume that like, you know, this is the way that we should all get around. We should all have to own a car and like, this is natural, right? But then when we look back to those early days of automobility, we can see that, oh, okay, you know, it wasn't always like this. And when the automobile was introduced, it wasn't natural that this was going to be the future of transportation, that this was going to kind of take off and be the way that we all get around, right? There was a concerted push to make that happen. And there was also opposition to it. As you mentioned, a lot of people in cities gone around in a very different way. And so when the automobile came in, when it started to kind of stake its claim in the street, when it went faster than the other transport modes that were there, it created problems, right? It, In particular, it started to hit people. It started to injure people. It started to kill people in particular. And children and young women were, you know, the ones that were most affected by this. And naturally, that caused a backlash by a lot of these publics, particularly because you say this was a luxury item at the, at the time. It wasn't something that was used by everybody, but a small portion of the population was benefiting while a lot of the rest of the population was being harmed, right? And so, you know, there were demonstrations, there were protests movements. There was propaganda, anti-car propaganda drawn up by the people who were kind of leading these movements. The the bells in churches and fire halls were rang to like draw attention to the fact that people were dying on the streets. There were all these different ways to show how the car was having this negative impact. And so then the question is, okay, how does um, the car then take hold, right? How does it how does it earn this place on the street that we see that it has today where it kind of dominates? And the way that that happens is not because a new technology is introduced and it naturally just kind of develops and takes over, right? It's because there was a concerted pressure by a number of commercial interests who benefited and profited from the automobile, you know, the auto manufacturers, the oil companies, the suppliers, Uh, the construction uh, industry that was building all the new roads and suburban homes and all these sorts of things and other industries and and interests that got behind it over time. And they wanted to see the automobile expand this kind of way of living that was associated with the automobile expand because it was going to be very profitable for them. And so they not only used their influence to craft counter narratives to change the way that people thought about the streets, and they worked with the newspapers who, you know, they spent a lot of money on advertising in order to kind of get their support for this. But then they also lobbied the government. And because they were a powerful kind of set of industries, they were able to get the government to change policies around transportation and streets to kind of pave the way for the automobile to take over. Okay, so what we have is the introduction of the car as a luxury item into very crowded streets, at least in in urban environments. And whether in urban or suburban or rural environments, people in these communities start seeing deaths pile up. And there's a bottom-up response to do something about this terrible problem of car deaths. As you say, they're, they're ringing bells in the churches and in the fire stations to commemorate the deaths. And then counter that comes a top-down response, both from the corporations and from 
the government to start crafting both counter-narratives to convince people, no, 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 cars are great, they're safe, they're wonderful, but also to, and I hadn't read this before, I appreciated you walking me through this, to craft the legal structures, as you wrote, to uphold automotive supremacy. In other words, there was a, a concerted effort by the state to create legal frameworks and infrastructures to support and even mold society in favor of the car. And this this flies in the face of this idea that a sufficiently superior technology is naturally going to take root. It's naturally going to be adopted by the public. But quietly what was happening, although there were some advantages to cars, it was not simply a free market response that led to automotive supremacy. There was a lot of investment by corporations and governments to make that happen. I just wanted to touch on one other thing that happened back in the early days. Because if you talk to people about the early history of cars, they'll say, yeah, wasn't there some kind of conspiracy where GM killed off streetcars? You go into a little, a little bit of detail about this, a, an actual conspiracy on the part of General Motors Standard Oil and Firestone. What happened there, Paris? Yeah, it's it's one of these kind of, I guess, examples that really stands out and kind of illustrates what was going on in this period, right? Where you not only had the government that was making these like significant investments to expand the system of automobility and these corporations that were trying to get the government to do these things, but also taking their own actions at the same time. It's actually interesting to go back and look at like early ideas of like roads and highways and things like that, because they were often imagined not simply to be for cars, but to be multimodal, to recognize that there were other ways that people got around as well. And then over time, the multimodality, like, you know, the idea that there should be trains or buses or, or specific routes for trucks and things like that associated with these highways was kind of pulled away, right? It was that the highway was for the car or this like particular kind of motor vehicle um, and nothing else was going to be there. And this example of this, I guess, conspiracy, as you call it, to pull up the streetcars is a good example of that because it shows how it was not just about getting more people to adopt cars, but also to revoke access to alternatives to cars so that people had to be dependent on the automobile. And so these companies teamed up to buy up these streetcar lines, rip them out, you know, pull them out of the cities because cities across the United States and Canada had plenty of streetcars back in the day, right? It was it was the way that many people got around because they didn't have cars. And if you wanted to go a, a little bit further than like a bike or walking could take you, then that was really kind of the best way to do it. So these companies pulled them up and the argument was that, you know, we'll replace the streetcars with bus systems. So then the streetcars aren't there anymore, but there's still transit to take people around and whatnot. But it's much easier then to cut back on a bus line than it is to cut back on a streetcar line that's kind of physically in the street. And I believe later, like, there was kind of antitrust concern about this, but then it was kind of too late to really do anything. Yeah, and this is why I use the word conspiracy, because as you wrote, the consortium of GM, Standard Oil, and Firestone was convicted of conspiracy under U.S. antitrust law in 1949, but by then it was too late. By the late 1950s, nearly all the streetcars across the country had been dismantled. And so what you have is the alternative is foreclosed by big companies and their government partners. And so what do people do if they have to get around? They don't have any options. They have to buy a car, which is what the companies obviously wanted. That introduced a new problem. When everybody and their brother buys a car, you get traffic. And the car is no longer delivering on its original promise of mobility and freedom and faster speeds. As a matter of fact, people found that they were getting around much slower than they were back in the days of multimodal use of streetcars and bikes and so on. What happened once people started to experience traffic snarls for the first time? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really interesting development, right? Because the, the car initially is this luxury product. It's used by very few people. So you're able to much easily get the benefit of kind of going faster than anyone else, which is kind of the promise of the automobile, but also to be able to go wherever you want. But then as it becomes this mass product that everyone is kind of expected to buy because that is how the companies make their profit by selling more cars to more people, those benefits 
erode because all of a sudden you have all of these people stuck on the streets. And so there is a ton of traffic. Then like as these things build up, we see, you know, the deaths are increasing, obviously, because there's more and more cars and people are more dependent on those to get around. You also have the reorientation of communities around the automobile. And so people are moving out to suburbs because there are incentives for that. And so then that makes it even difficult to imagine using any other mode because the car is the only way that, you know, you can get around your suburb, get to the rest of the city. And then you also have kind of the environmental impacts of that that come a little bit later, right? As there are so many more cars, you start to have the smog and the issues like that, that I guess are unforeseen for many people as that that is expanding. But as this mass use comes to be experienced by people, there are a whole range of negative consequences of that. I just love how all the language you're using, we could almost switch out cars with the internet and it would be a one-to-one, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think that was one of the, and you, you did make this point to some extent in the last two chapters of the book, but when there is a technology that has some promise, but also some potential downsides, what you want to do is understand the community needs and build out the infrastructures for the good of people, not for the good of corporations and incredibly rich billionaires. What we did with cars and, of course, what we later did with the Internet, what we're seeing now is that we, we built a platform that mostly caters to the interests of the powerful and wealthy. But to get back to cars, what happened after we were left with this jammed up system of highways and streets and so on with everyone owning a car. If you fast forward to the 2020s, this is what you write. This is the the state of cars on the road today. To secure individual advantage in the Darwinian struggle for space, this is today now, some drivers up the ante by buying large, powerful, military-like sport utility vehicles, lording it over the lower species of the road, that is to say, regular sedans, (laughs) in an aggressive grandeur that only makes driving more competitive and dangerous. In that same chapter, you write that automakers have been promoting large trucks and SUVs that not only make them more money, but are heavier, taller, and have broader front ends that are two to three times more likely to kill pedestrians. And for longtime Tectonic listeners, this is the second time I've brought this up, that specific data point. Uh, A few years ago, I had Sam Schwartz on the show talking about his book, No One at the Wheel, and he brought up the same point that in New York City, pedestrian injuries and deaths are way up because of these giant grills on the front of these these monster vehicles, uh, SUV-truck combos that I don't know why people need these things to to go five miles an hour in Manhattan traffic, but there they are. And God forbid uh, a person or a kid get in front of one of those things. It's uh, it's just it's terrible. And yet there is a a perverse sort of set of incentives that helps explain why people are buying into this Mad Max environment because everybody else is doing it, and that's their only way to survive on the roads, right? Absolutely. And there's also kind of uh, incentives for automakers to push this as well, right? Like the advertising is focused around it because these vehicles are much more profitable for the auto companies. We're seeing the North American automakers even kind of roll back their sedans and make fewer of them. Uh, They cut a bunch out of their out of their lines. I think Ford is only going to be making the focus from now on. And so the focus is really on these large vehicles that are more profitable, but also are more harmful to the environment and to the humans that surround the automobiles. You know, you mentioned a a couple of years ago, you were talking to someone who said those stats have been going up. What we saw was last year, deaths on American roads reached a new kind of record going back. It's the highest since like the 90s or something like that. Over 42,000 people were killed on American roads. And that's as pedestrian deaths and cyclist deaths have been going up more than like driver deaths, so to speak. So it's it's real carnage on the roads right now. It's, it's really terrible development what's happening right now. And it's really shocking that there's not more focus on that. Like, yes, we have been in a pandemic the past two plus years. You know, I think that's understandable to a certain degree. But like, at what point do people in cities, people who manage these policies finally say like, this is too much. Like there are just too many people dying as a result of this system that's certainly profitable for some interests, but really is not working for 
the residents of this community, so to speak. But there's good news, Paris. <laughs> Everything you just said is true and it's been normalized. So we can all just disregard all of that because there's really good news that's going to brighten your day, Paris, in that giant two-ton behemoth that's barreling down the road with a giant front grill that is killing everything in its path. Don't worry about that. The good news is inside that monster is a battery. There's no longer a combustion <laughs> engine. It's a battery. This is an electric vehicle. It's an EV, and all of our problems are solved. And now you've got, in Chapter 3, greenwashing the electric vehicle, which raises a question, what exactly has to be greenwashed? Because there's no pollution coming out of a tailpipe. There's no tailpipe. It's just wonderful. And you carefully give us an analysis of electric vehicles and describe what you might call their dirty secret. What is that, Paris? Yeah, it's a really good point. You know, if, if you look back at the history of electric vehicles, like they're, they're not a new thing, right? They're around in, in the late 1800s. They have this competition with the internal combustion engine and it wins out, right? And then we have what, basically a century where the internal combustion is dominant. And now the electric, and certainly there have been periods through that moment where it looked like the electric vehicle might be coming back and then, you know, it hasn't and it hasn't and it hasn't. But now I think we're at this moment where certainly there's this effort to make the electric vehicle a thing, right? To, to have it replace the internal combustion vehicle that, that we're all used to. The issue here is that the electric vehicle certainly is better than the internal combustion vehicle in the vast majority of cases. Because one of the things that often happens in these discourses, particularly when you're talking to um, Tesla people and people who are really convinced about the electric vehicle, is it's either your pro-electric vehicle or your pro-fossil fuel industry, right? And, and that those are the, the only two categories that you can fit in. And that doesn't really capture it, right? Because when we talk about the electric vehicle, and we see this with governments in, in Canada, and I'm sure it happens in the United States as well, and they say that it is a zero emissions vehicle, right? That makes it sound like it's completely this great thing that has no drawbacks. We're completely solving the problem here of climate change um, because we've taken away the tailpipe. But that doesn't really get to it because the electric vehicle has a much higher production emissions than you know your regular internal combustion engine vehicle. And that's because of the big battery that is in these vehicles that is needed to propel them. And that battery is made up of a lot of minerals that need to be mined from the ground to make these vehicles work effectively. The International Energy Agency estimates that in order to kind of realize this future that we're being sold by the auto companies and by, you know, Western governments, that all we need to do is replace all of these internal combustion engine vehicles with, you know, battery operated vehicles effectively, that that would require an estimated 4,200% increase in lithium production and over 2,000% increases in cobalt and nickel. Like this is very significant amounts of, of increased extraction that needs to take place in order to realize this incredibly resource intensive future where we just keep our, our automobiles, but now they're battery powered instead of powered by fossil fuels, essentially. And so I think it's very concerning because in having these narratives that the electric vehicle is this kind of uncompromising green thing that's going to solve our climate problem, especially in the transportation space, we dismiss so many of the harms that actually come, not just of like the general system of automobility, regardless of what's powering it, but specifically the electric vehicle itself, the really dirty supply chains that are based on this extraction, the effects that those have on the local environments around the mines, also the workers at the mines who are affected by them, and the communities that surround the mines who are often told they'll benefit from these projects and what have you, and then find that, you know, their local environments are despoiled, they don't get the benefits that they were promised and all these things, right? And so my concern is that, you know, we continue on this path of automobility, we replace our fossil fuel vehicles with electric vehicles, we pat ourselves on the back up here in the West and say, oh, you know, we've solved climate change, when actually we're just exporting the problem to these countries in the global South, as we always do, keeping up these kind of, you know, imperial relationships, these even colonial relationships, relationships that, that we have with some of these countries that extract these minerals and don't change these really fundamental 
problems with kind of the world system that we've created when we really have this like unique opportunity to rethink so much, not just about mobility, but the broader structures that we've built up in our society. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview with Paris Marx, who has a new book out called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And as you heard Paris just describing just then before the break, there are problems inherent in electric vehicles even though they have no tailpipe and no emissions coming out of the back of the car, there are still some structural problems that are really not getting the attention that they deserve. And uh, the book does a good job of, of covering issues, systemic issues like this. I appreciated it, that um, there's criticism that you don't normally see in the mainstream press. So I appreciate Paris being on the show. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Paris Marks. Join us on the playlist at WFMU.org to uh, join in the live listener chat. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. You've spent the book up to this point describing the history of the car and how that has brought about a number of drawbacks that have never been addressed systemically. And so if you take a, a top-down view of a car and traffic, you can see the design of the car and how many cars there are and all of the infrastructure that's necessary to support this and, and, and everything that we've talked about. And if you look at that entire system and you reach into that one car and you pull out the combustion engine and you put in a battery, then you think, what have we solved? <laughs> I mean... There's not a tailpipe. Very good. But other than that, what have we solved? And I thought you had a nice summary of this or a nice conclusion on this point in this EV chapter. You write, a more equitable, environmentally conscious transportation system will ultimately require reducing the use of automobiles, regardless of what powers them, and embracing other forms of mobility that not only produce fewer emissions per person, but offer a path to reimagining our communities in a way that does not need to make room for cars. It turns out the problem with internal combustion cars isn't the internal combustion, it's the cars part. (laughs) We have to look for ways to resist some of the utopian language that we are continually fed by some of the richest companies in the world, which leads me to the next chapter. You did a nice job on the case study of the little startup called Uber. <laughs> Uber had a lot of the promises that we've heard from Silicon Valley, or, or made a lot of these promises. We're going to drive you around, so you're no longer going to need to own a car. We're going to reduce carbon emissions because there's going to be less usage of cars. We're going to give greater access to the underserved populations in these cities we're going to reduce traffic, we're going to reduce parking congestion, and with with fewer cars on the road, it's going to be safe for everybody. It was just promise after promise after promise. And then, to jump to the punchline, there was a study after a few years of Uber in San Francisco when all sorts of problems were were proliferating, and this (laughs) this study looked at all the data, and they concluded, quote, the Uber model adds vehicles to the road and creates more traffic. In San Francisco, the glut of ride-hailing vehicles meant more traffic and slower travel speeds. And that's before we get to the mistreatment of the drivers. What should we conclude about Uber and its bid to be the savior of our mobility crisis? Yeah, I would say Uber sold us a lie that really, you know, worked for itself and and a number of other, whether they're tech companies or or other corporate interests, right, that wanted to see not just the deregulation of the taxi industry in the United States, in many cities across the United States, picking up on a failed campaign to kind of complete that process in the 1990s, because, 
you know, the the kind of taxi regulations in many major U.S. cities have been chipped away at over time. Um, but Uber was really kind of fulfilling an opportunity to really kind of finally wipe them out. Right. And Uber emerges post 2008, you know, after this recession where a lot of people are out of work takes advantage of that fact right takes advantage of the fact that a lot of people lost their decent jobs and were having trouble finding replacements for that and so even if they get like a less well-paying job they pick up something like an uber in order to make some additional cash because now they're not earning as much as they were before the recession and so uber sees this and certainly takes advantage of it as do many of these other gig economy uber for x companies as they were called at the time adopting Uber's model and then extending it into another sector. And then Uber grows and and it gets a ton of really positive press or a a lot of really positive coverage, not just tech publications, but even mainstream publications picking up the narrative that it's selling about how it's going to make cities so much better, transportation so much more efficient, how it's helping all of these drivers with this new kind of entrepreneurial work that's like the future of how we're going to be working and all these sorts of things. Meanwhile, you know, it's making cities worse to live in. It's reducing transit use. It's increasing the number of cars on the road, having all these other negative impacts, decimating the rights of these workers, paying them less and less every year as it cuts the subsidies that it gave to sustain its model. And now we see after this period of time, after it's been able to chip away at these regulations and and the rights of these workers, it's launched a campaign to try to get these new ideas of labor regulation written into law in not just California and other parts of the United States, but in the UK, in Canada, in other parts of the world. And so it really is this, even if Uber is never profitable, and let's note that many early investors have made their money back when the company IPO'd, even though it's never made a real profit. Even if it never does make a profit, it has had a significant benefit in rolling back the rights of these workers in, I would say, launching this campaign in service of the capitalist class that many others now will be able to benefit from, even if it's not able to find like a sustainable, profitable model now that its subsidies from venture capitalists and whatnot is finally disappearing. Yeah, the people who were first in as investors have already been paid, so... Whatever happens to Uber as a company or as a stock at this point doesn't really matter to them, does it? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's really interesting. Like we see now Uber is making more deals with taxi companies, right? After kind of decimating the taxi industry for the past decade, after subsidizing its service with this venture capitalist money, it's now making deals with taxi companies in New York and San Francisco and Italy in order to offer taxi services on its app. So, you know, my concern now, especially, is after effectively wiping out the regulatory structure for taxi companies in in many of these cities, it looks like they'll be subjected to Uber's rules and and what Uber wants to have happen. And I don't think that's positive for taxi drivers and certainly not for, you know, taxi riders as well. Yeah. I've lived in New York City for over 20 years, and one part of the fabric of this city especially in Manhattan, is seeing the yellow cabs. It's just an iconic part of the city. And over the last, since 2008, what is that, over 14 years, I've seen fewer and fewer and fewer yellow cabs on the street. And I always try to take the yellow cabs if I can. But when you talk to other New Yorkers and they say, oh, I Ubered here, I Ubered there, and I say, why not just take a a yellow cab? Or we, we get to talking about how things used to be with the yellow cabs. And they said, but you know... The TLC, the Taxi and Limousine Commission here in New York City, it was so corrupt. You know, the medallions were overpriced. And I say, okay, there was some corruption, but do you like the new boss better than the old boss with taxi drivers losing jobs and having to move to Uber where they're far more exploited? You pointed out a detail that people should keep in mind as Uber is reaching out to uh, taxi commissions in cities worldwide. You wrote in the Uber chapter... Uber has many costs that taxi companies do not. Uber's executives are paid millions of dollars a year, and Uber has to maintain expensive headquarters in cities around the world, not to mention in years past this crackpot R&D team that came up with moonshot ideas that never went anywhere. That costs a lot of money as well. In other words, what you're pointing out is that compared to the old TLC or the old taxi commission city by city, which may have had some 
some problems built into their model. They certainly were not paying the head of the, the taxi commission millions of dollars in salary and many more millions in some kind of, of spurious equity value, nor were they maintaining lavish offices with free lunches and all the perks for all of the employees. All of that is what people are paying for when they use Uber rather than using a city service. And I, I think it's just a real shame that cities, and maybe it's the case, but they perceive that they have no other options at this point than to do a deal with the devil and to take Uber's call. If there was any way to avoid that, I would, I would recommend it. Yeah, I would just say as well, like Uber was able to avoid, I think, having a lot of people recognize the degree to which its model was not actually more efficient than the taxi model for a long time because it was so heavily subsidized by these venture capitalists and it was losing billions of dollars a year in, in some cases. And so it was able to hide the degree to which, you know, by having these headquarters, by having these high paid executives, by having these expensive software developers, et cetera, et cetera, that its model was more expensive than the more basic model of the taxi company with this fleet of vehicles that is all being managed with the same insurance on them. You know, they're similar vehicles. They can all be kind of repaired more easily and all of these kind of efficiencies that come with that. Whereas even on that case, Uber was relying on every single driver to have their own vehicle. And so you even lost the efficiencies there as well. And so when you actually look at what it takes to run an efficient transportation service, Uber's model was all wrong. It just had an app that appeared innovative, right? Because it was on your smartphone instead of having to call up a taxi dispatcher. And because of that, it was able to sell this like narrative, this whole idea to the press and then through the press to the public that it was the future, that it was better than what existed before. It's Hubert Horan, really, who I'm pulling from, who makes that observation about the inefficiency of the Uber model. And yeah, I, I think it was really lost. And I, I think it's something that we're going to have to recognize as Uber tries to now cement its place in the city after this decade plus of losing this amount of money so it can achieve this powerful position on transportation. There's one last aspect of this book, Road to Nowhere, that I want to bring up. This is what you call the coming fight for the sidewalk. So this whole book you've been talking about, the roads, uh, the history of cars and cars on highways and cars on streets and electric vehicles and so on. And then finally you get to the sidewalk. It started with, in 2018, these e-scooters from a company called Bird. And people may rem remember this from a few years ago. There were cities, major cities in the U.S., that were becoming dumping grounds for these stupid little e-scooters. So people would check out an e-scooter with an app and ride it around town and then just fling it wherever they wanted. And the company promised, oh, don't worry, we'll have some of our gig workers pick them up in th at 3 in the morning. They're definitely not exploited workers. Don't worry. They'll track them down and, and we'll clean up your mess. So go ahead. And after a while, cities started pushing back, San Francisco among them. You write a nice case study about San Francisco pushing back against the, the piles of bird scooters that were, could we call them bird droppings, that were <laughs> cluttering, I like that one. Yeah, cluttering, cluttering up the sidewalks and uh, the public spaces of the city. And the point you're making overall is that the VCs in Silicon Valley having tapped out the roads, are now looking at the sidewalk as a public resource that they can take over and monetize and, frankly, ruin for their profitable ends. Can you say more about what's happening on the sidewalk? Yeah, well, you know, I think if you go back to the emergence of the automobile and kind of the remaking of the streets for the automobile, we see something very important in that moment that is forgotten today. As we were talking about, the streets were the space that were shared by a whole number of different forms of transportation. People were walking on the streets. People were biking on the streets. People were taking the streetcars. People were in the carriages. There were little vendors across the sides of the streets. On the, on the side streets themselves, kids would be playing in the street, right? Because there was not so much traffic. Things were moving slow. You could get out of the way. There wasn't a huge risk like there was with the automobile when it came around. And so to make space for the automobile, to make the street accessible to the automobile and so that these companies could sell more automobiles, everything else had to be pushed off the street. The streets had to be made for the automobiles themselves. And then we were told that if we didn't cross at these designated areas, that we were jaywalkers, that we could get in trouble if we didn't do that. So there was a whole kind of 
not just physical reconstruction of the street, but a social reconstruction as well as to how we thought about the street, right? How we should use the street um, as people who live in a city. And it was remade to serve the interests of the automobiles and, and the auto companies. And so now my concern with seeing these I guess, tech ideas and and tech companies that are utilizing the sidewalk in this way that is trying to take over this space, you know, I'm worried that we're seeing something similar play out here where, you know, the scooters and, and even the dockless bikes to a certain degree were taking up this space on the sidewalk. There was little consideration given to what the impacts of that would be if these scooters and bikes were just littered on the sidewalks and taking up this space. And now we see it with the push or the desire to have these autonomous delivery robots that are using the sidewalks as well, right? And certainly it's it's cute and it's novel when there are a few sidewalk delivery robots going around, you know, maybe maybe five or six in the whole community. Like, you know, it's just a test thing. It's not a big deal. Oh, look at this little robot delivering a burrito to someone or whatever, right? But then if if this becomes entrenched, if it's something that these companies companies actually want to try to make a reality, there will have to be many more of those robots on the sidewalk. And that's going to take up a lot more space. And I would just say, like, to pick up on your point about what you noted there, like, these are people in Silicon Valley who are having these ideas, who are particularly wealthy people, who have a particular experience of the city and of the transportation system. It's why so many of their ideas are focused around the automobile and keeping people in automobiles when we look at people like Elon Musk. And so when they have ideas for scooter companies or these sidewalk drone delivery things, they're not really considering how people are using the sidewalk because they don't really use the sidewalk themselves. They see it as open space that they can colonize for their next business decision and start, you know, a fight with the people who actually use and rely on the sidewalk because they won't be the people who are ultimately affected by that because they're in their cars and getting driven to where they want to go, right? It likely not even an autonomous car. And so, yeah, it, I think it does create this real fight for what the future of this particular public space, public resource is going to be, especially when we look back at what has happened to the street before this. Whenever there there's a public space that's not been taken over by by capital, they're always going to try to seize it. And so I think you see that with sidewalks, too. Get them out of New York City is what I would say. There's my mayoral platform. Get Silicon Valley every out other of New city. York City. Yeah. <laughs> and every, we'll, we'll start with New York. But, but seriously, you have a nice case study of how San Francisco, of all places, successfully resisted, to some extent, the bird scooters and forced reform. Uh, about restricting the access that bird scooters have to the sidewalk and to public spaces. Listeners can go get Road to Nowhere and read the case study for themselves. But you have a very important conclusion in that bird case study that's applicable to everything we've been talking about in this conversation. Because people often ask me, what can I do or what can my community do when the forces arrayed against us are so powerful? And what you write about those successful activists in San Francisco is that they started pushing back the moment Silicon Valley started nosing its way into the community. Right away, they started opposing it. Here's what you write. Quote, the territorial expansion of tech must be opposed as soon as it begins because once their services become normalized, it is nearly impossible to get rid of them, regardless of their actual impacts. And so what I take from that, Paris, and what I take from this book, is that when we see warning signs like the ones you're describing in Road to Nowhere, we have to speak out immediately. And I hope this book is an inspiration to people and groups and communities to begin organizing against the intrusions of Silicon Valley capital into their communities. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, obviously, I thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. It's been fantastic to speak with you about these issues, you know, about what Silicon Valley is doing to our communities. And I think as you observed early on, how by looking at what they've done in transportation, it really kind of gives us a much better picture, not just of what they're doing in that sector, but so much more of what they're doing in our society and why that needs to be pushed back on and challenged and not just accepted as the way that things are and should be. Uh, Paris, where can we find your podcast, Tech Won't Save Us? Anywhere. Any of the podcast platforms, it should be on there if people want to uh, listen in and, and learn about why tech won't save us. 
Paris Marks, author of Road to Nowhere. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on Tectonic and hope you'll be back sometime. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. tuning in you're listening to tectonic on wfmu my name is mark hurst i will be your host for the remaining 12 minutes of the show and then dan boda the great dan boda comes online he is doing a special two-hour show of vocal fry this evening as ebba is out and so i hope you will stay tuned for two hours of the great dan boda followed by brother daniel blumen coming up at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. We just heard my interview with Paris Marks, author of the new book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And as I think you could tell, I enjoyed the book. It was very provocative and wide-ranging. And if you are interested, as (laughs) the folks on the comment board seem to be, if you're interested in transportation and the problems in our current system, Go out to Verso Books and get yourself a copy of Road to Nowhere. As I said at the top of the show, uh, this book, Road to Nowhere, is the, the third book in a row published by Verso that I have featured on the show. And so thanks to the good folks at Verso for uh, delivering such, such important voices in book form to all of us for our edification now, uh, there, was an, uh, there was an important comment that, uh, well, there was a number of good comments on the comment board. I was trying to follow along during the interview, but uh, listener Dean made a good point that electric cars also generate particulate matter, just like internal combustion engines, because tires deteriorate. And what Dean is pointing out is along the lines of what Paris and I were discussing, that you know you can you can remove the internal combustion engine and you can put in a battery and you're still going to have most of the systemic problems that we've got in the system already and Dean correctly pointed out that electric vehicles also use tires and when the rubber literally meets the road you get particulate matter that you don't want anybody uh, really breathing in and yet it happens and this is not to say that we should somehow have cars without tires or something. It's just, it's important for us to have a conversation about what the downsides are to our current system and to think about alternatives. Uh, I tend to agree with, with Paris, uh, the, the quote that I read off from the book, that in the end, it's going to have to result in some kind of system that means less usage of cars. Uh, not simply moving all the cars over to battery-powered, but but figuring out a way to have less usage, not, not getting rid of cars, but just how do we reduce usage and uh, put more ridership on shared transportation options like buses or light rail or, uh, or uh, intercity rail. I, I'm, I'm not sure what it's going to take over the years, but I know that one reason I have always enjoyed Uh, living in Manhattan is because I don't need to own a car and um, that's one of the privileges of of living there that we we do have a good subway and bus system and the city is quite walkable Uh, but it's not just Manhattan Uh, Paris Marx also writes at the end of the book about some other cities that are trying some experiments one uh, noted experiment in Paris that's going on is called the 15-minute city Uh, I believe the the mayor has announced uh, a desire for uh, people, uh, the residents of Paris, to be able to walk within 15 minutes to all their basic and essential services. And that's something like, uh, something close to what we have in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, and I appreciate it a lot. So I don't, and I know this is, (laughs) Manhattan is not the solution for all communities across the U.S., let alone the globe. There are uh, rural communities that, that are not closely packed, 
but it's at least this book is at least a start a starter to a conversation that we should be having to think about what are our alternatives to making bigger and bigger highways that are uh, host to bigger and bigger vehicles. Um, I mentioned the the interview that I uh, ran a few years ago. This was, I'm looking at it, April 1st, 2019. Uh, you can find it in the archives at WFMU.org. I, uh, I interviewed Sam Schwartz, who's also known as, here in New York as Gridlock Sam. He had written a book called No One at the Wheel. Uh, it's similar to this idea of road to nowhere. Um, Sam's book was No One at the Wheel. And he, we talked in that interview about the rise in pedestrian injury and death over recent years that is, uh, that is correlate, correlative with the uh, growth of these front grills in these massive SUVs. That there's really, I don't, there's no aerodynamic reason. I don't understand uh, other than the SUV design being some sort of a flex. Look at the tank that I'm, that I'm running with. Uh, but it's in practical usage, it's really, I can only think of negative outcomes starting with the pedestrians. I remember Sam saying that in years past, before this design switch uh, with older cars, when pedestrians would be struck by cars, they would come into the emergency room with, uh, with knee and maybe hip uh, fractures. And those are obviously terrible, but they're not necessarily uh, always life-threatening. Whereas today, when people are struck by a car, they go to the emergency room. If they survive at all, they go to the ER with chest injuries because these, the grills are now higher up and obviously a chest injury is much more serious than a knee injury. And you can see in the statistics that, that people are being injured and, and killed in much higher numbers, both pedestrians and cyclists. And that is, as I said, that that's coincident with this rise in uh, superficially tougher look, looking vehicles. And I also appreciated that, that Paris Marx <laughs> talked about this uh, this rise in what I, what I think of as the Mad Max mentality out on the highways, that if everyone else is driving a tank, I'd better be driving a tank too, or else they could roll right over me if I have one of the traditional small sedans. And so there's this, it's almost like an arms race of people getting bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier vehicles, less practical, less practical, and uh, more and more lethal to anyone and anything that, that they strike. And in some sense, there's a perverse uh, reason for it that drivers are simply engaged in self-preservation. Uh, they, they see the, the tanks that are, that are around them on the highway. And it just doesn't seem sustainable to me. Um, and that's, that's combined with a pandemic era, just craziness of how people were feeling and driving. Um, sometime during the pandemic, I told a story of driving my family in a regular rental car sedan down the uh, peninsula, the, what's called the Delmarva Peninsula of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. And you can go back in the archives. Someone can post uh, which show it was. But I told a story at the top of the show about one of these uh, trucks, this truck driver who did not like that I had stopped at a red light and, uh, and went all Mad Max on me and um, literally tried to run me and my family off the road. Uh, fortunately, we were unharmed. But it just uh, it was just a reminder to me, again, of how lucky I feel to, to live in a place where I don't have to deal with that every day. And I wish there was some trajectory for us as a country to move to a transportation system where we have less of this, not more, which is the, the trajectory we're on, is to have more highways, more traffic, and more craziness on the roads as people drive more and more large and practical tanks uh, around each other. I also uh, put on the playlist a, and I'm probably not going to have, well, I certainly am not going to have time for it this, this week, but there was a massive leak of Uber documents. I may get to it next week. Next week, I'm planning on doing one of my occasional news roundups. We're overdue. I've been covering so many books, uh, which I've enjoyed, 
but there's a lot of tech news that I have uh, let go unannounced, and so we're going to try to catch up on tech news next week. And one thing that I may mention is this massive leak that was reported in The Guardian. You can take a look at that on the playlist if you want to get a little preview. Um, the, the short story is it, it's not good. Uber does not come off looking very good. And finally, uh, we are, let's see, like I said, we are going to be uh, graced with two hours of Dan Boda, so I want you to stay tuned for that right here on the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, I have some homework for you, and I think you know what it is. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And for our outro this evening, I thought, how, how appropriate would it be if we listened to the longtime listener and friend of the show, Handy Haversack, and, uh, and played a little, a little selection that had to do with giant vehicles. Hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you next week. Can you name the truck with four-wheel drive? Smells like a steak and seats 35. Can you narrow? Can you narrow? Well, it goes real slow with the hammer down. It's the country pride truck endorsed by a clown. Can you narrow? Can you Federal Highway Commission has ruled the Canyon Arrow unsafe for highway or city driving. Twelve yards long, two lanes wide, sixty-five tons of American pride. Canyon Arrow, Canyon Arrow. Top of the line in utility sports. Unexplained fires are a matter for the courts. Canyon Arrow, Canyon Arrow. She blinds everybody with a super high beam. She's a squirrel squasher, deer smacking, driving machine. Canyon Arrow. Canyon
Thank <laughs> you.